My dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Been thinking about vacation these last few days. Why do you go on vacation? Why do people do it? Hmm? Spend all that money, gas at five bucks a gallon, airfares through the roof. Why do people go on vacation? Well, the obvious answer is rejuvenation, maybe. Huh? Relaxation, a chance to kick back. Just unplugging from all the electronics, maybe, for a little while. I don't know. Unplugging from their life. Sometimes I, th I think it might be more a matter of literally vacating. <laughs> vacating our usual place. Along the lines of an escape, kind of. There's a part of me feeling just that as my wife Laura and I are loading the car top carrier and getting ready to head out for a week in Colorado in the mountains, particularly after this week of dealing with the after effects of the hailstorm that wreaked substantial havoc on our home and probably more havoc on our psyches, comes a point when you just kind of want to run away, you know, even if just for a little bit. But I think a big part of vacating one's usual place can sometimes be more of a desire to get back in touch with something inside of ourselves, you know? To get back in touch with something we might call our true selves. It's so easy, you know, to lose one's self in work or in routine. To lose yourself in every other thing that would Compete not only for your attention, but for your very soul, right? Compete for your allegiances. Some of the soul-depleting compromises we make every day, let's face it, are out of necessity. We do them for the sake of our family and our community, but sometimes those compromises arise simply out of a concern for comfort, taking the path of least resistance, kind of, to get us from today to tomorrow with the least amount of trouble, just hold it together. And vacations are then a chance to kind of temporarily detach from so many of the attachments and try to remember who we really are deep in our souls. And once reminded, then we hope to take back some of that rediscovered knowledge so we don't just automatically fall back into the captivity of the same routines or the same patterns of grind and stress or whatever. Some folks I know have the privilege of traveling to exotic destinations to see something totally new to them. Maybe you've heard it said that if you want to learn more about your own country, go visit another one, right? See how life is done somewhere else. And it makes you think about how you do life back in your own place. But such educational experiences are not only for the kind of well-heeled privileged traveler. They can be had a lot more close to home than one might often realize. And so it was that uh, one day Jesus decides to go on a little vacation with his disciples in the eighth chapter of Luke's gospel. I call it vacation because that's literally what they did. They vacated Jesus' home territory, that area west of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus had grown up, where he had been spending more than just a little bit of time engaging religious leaders in 
important theological discussions and healing folks who needed healing and feeding hungry people. Keeping a pretty constant schedule, you know, of teaching and preaching. So much so that his own family, by this time in that gospel, was complaining about not even being able to get an audience with him. And so it was that Jesus says to his friends, hey, let's get in a boat and let's go to the other side of the sea. Get away for a while. And so they do. But for Jesus, this turns out to be more of a working vacation. And for the rest of us, I guess you could call it kind of an educational field trip in which we're given a lesson that we just might be able to carry back home. Luke tells us how Jesus and his crew arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, and as he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. Now what's interesting here right off the bat is that Gerasa, the city, is actually about 30 miles inland to the east of the Sea of Galilee. It's nowhere near the shore. So now that causes me to wonder, did Luke have his geography messed up? Or what? Some later editors traded out land of the Gerasenes for land of the Gadarenes, because a village by the name of Gadara was about 10 miles inland, closer to the sea. And then some editors traded out for land of the Gergesenes, because there was supposedly a fishing village called Gergesa, a little bit further south, right along the coast. I recently read a fascinating reflection of this little dilemma by Eric Garner in the Christian century, where he suggests that maybe Luke knew exactly what he was writing when he said land of the Gerasenes, even if the distances and the timing don't mesh for the astute historian. And that's because Luke wasn't trying to give anybody here a history lesson. He was trying to give us a living parable. In other words, it's not simply a story of the possession of one man released from his demons. It's a story of the death-dealing forces of empire that would threaten to possess the whole world. God's mission to overthrow those demons and the reticence of the possessed to give up their possessors. You see, according to the historian Josephus, who lived middle in the last part of the first century A.D., in the year 66 A.D., the Roman army brutalized the people of Gerasa, this town 30 miles inland from Galilee, as part of its campaign against a bunch of Jewish rebels during the first Roman-Jewish war. And while it wouldn't have taken a whole legion of Roman troops to subdue that place, probably a sizable detachment of Roman soldiers brutalized that territory and its citizens. And you see, you better believe that Luke's first readers of his gospel account would have recognized what the demon's name, legion, represented here, making the association between demonic possession and brutal military occupation. And when Jesus tosses the demons out of that one guy in the story, he's saying something about his power over every single occupying force that would threaten to steal God's own away from him. And just in case you missed the reference to Roman occupation in the demon's name, legion, 
You can't miss it in what happens next, right? Where did Jesus send those demons once he had exorcised them from the man? Remember? Send them into the pigs, right? Have you ever wondered to yourself, what was a herd of pigs doing in a Jewish town like Gerasa? Can't eat pork, right? It's against the dietary laws for those who were kosher. It was probably to feed occupying Roman soldiers, you see. And it was probably a herd that was tended to by faithful Jews who figured it was easier to go along and get along with their Roman occupiers. Hmm. When you're possessed by another, you end up doing the possessor's bidding, you see. Isn't it interesting that after Jesus breaks the bonds of oppression for this guy, all the townspeople ask him to leave, <laughs> revealing a preference for the, the shackles of empire over the freedom of God's reign. The devil, you know, is always easier to deal with than a freedom that is totally new to you. This is nothing new in the history of God's people, according to what we read in the Bible, right? The prophet Isaiah, who lived some six centuries before Jesus, is pretty well acquainted with how folks can forget who and whose they are once they become possessed by another, and who through fear become quite content then to adopt the ways of their possessor, to worship anything and everything that isn't where real life is found. I was ready to be sought out by those who did not seek me, to be found by those who didn't look for me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that didn't call on my name anymore. I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good for them, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and offering incense on bricks, who sit inside tombs, spending the night in secret places, eating swine's flesh with abominable things in their vessels. He's writing those words, you know, 600 years before Jesus, to a people occupied by Babylon, now beginning to look just like their Babylonian possessors. The story ends up being not just about one man with a demon here, but about a whole people who have become comfortable with possession and loyal to their possessors. The people, in other words, who have forgotten their own name. What's your name? My name is Legion. My name is Rome. My name is my possessor. The question to consider, I guess, for us is this. What are the legions that would have you forget your own name as a child of God? What are the empirical forces that would possess you? And what might it actually cost you to be free of them? Some possibilities to consider. Just throw them out. Maybe sometimes it's the identities we feel we have to create for ourselves in our work, our careers, sacrificing time, family, relationships, our very sanity to have it. Hmm? Maybe sometimes... It's the indifference that we feel towards those who suffer unfairly simply because of something like their race or their gender or their physical or mental challenges 
because we suspect that in recognizing the unfairness of it, something in us might have to change. Maybe, sometime, it's the allegiances that we pledge ourselves to in our politics, right? Sacrificing the neighbor we don't agree with for the sake of the neighbors who think just like I do on marbles, on altars of marble in places like Pier or in Washington, D.C. Maybe sometimes it's the comforting promise of sufficiency that's held out to us by malls and merchants and corporations alike promising me that if I just have enough of the right stuff, I'll be all right. That if I possess enough, I'll be free. I couldn't help but have those thoughts as I stood last Sunday evening in my yard looking at the biggest possession I own, my house, beat to crap by about five minutes of hailstones. <laughs> this thing that I thought I possessed that can come to possess me and make all this anxiety inside of me till, till it turns out that maybe it possesses me more than I it. How easily the things we possess from our careers to our ideas to our stuff can end up possessing us and make us forget our real name. Beloved of God. Beloved of God. Good news, of course, is this. That Jesus is going to keep being Jesus and doing his thing regardless of how many demons complain about it. The disciples' little vacation with Jesus across the sea it wasn't exactly a day at the beach, but at least they had plenty to take home with them. You see, what they learned is that if Jesus is in the business of setting people free, then who are we to complain about it? Huh? Thanks be to God. Amen.